Hello from sunny and warm Austin, Texas, and welcome to episode 53 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I am still Bobby Chesney. I'm still Steve Vladek. You just had to rub that in. What, the weather? Sunny and warm. <laughs> yes, I so, did. So so many of our listeners are probably looking out outside and seeing snow, ice, slush, I like to think tundra. that all of our listeners in the colder climes are all like kind of curled up in front of a fire. It's hot cocoa. Drinking some hot cocoa and, and listening to uh, us. That's well, exactly so, how it goes So it's down. Tuesday, January 9th. We're recording this around 2.30 Central Time. Bobby, a week from right now, speaking of drinking... Um, I will be hopefully several one or five cocktails into uh, a, a post-oral argument lunch. I'm, I'm glad, although a little disappointed, you said uh, post. Post-oral <laughs> argument. Have you considered the brunch approach? You know, I, I just, I mean, so so I will say some of my friends know the story of the wedding where a very drunk me had to pretend to be sober while having a conversation with two circuit judges. Was this your wedding, this Steve? This was not my wedding. Okay, this was definitely judging. not my wedding. I was actually not that drunk at my wedding. I'm glad to hear um, that. I don't really think that's that's that's. I don't think it's going to help my argument no, if I walk no. in, you know, three sheets to the wind. Well, we're going to hear a little preview of your ar- argument shortly because one of our sort of three buckets of serious topics today is the Dalmazi preview. Dalmazi. Oh, that's in the serious bucket, not that's the, in the serious bucket. bucket. <laughs> that tells you a lot, actually. <laughs> so we, we've got a lot to talk about today. First, we're going to talk about uh, the expected developments in ACLU v. Mattis, our John Doe enemy combatant case. A lot going on there. Um, that will take a fair amount of time, but then after that, we'll do a sort of a mini preview, uh, a, a shallow dive into Dalmazi, which mm-hmm. Steve will be arguing in his first Supreme Court argument. My first argument. Your first, your first argument. Uh, I, appearing before judges for the first time since the moot court finals, my 3L year in law school. Now, that's awesome. It's I something. I love that. Okay. That, that, I cannot wait to see how this goes. I think it's going to go great. <laughs> I, I've done a moot for you. You have you impressed me then. Well, eh. We'll see if you can impress them Seriously. without drinking. Uh, and then, and then thirdly, we will take note of a sort of a trio of FISA-related issues. As we're recording this on the afternoon on Tuesday, the House Rules Committee is is addressing what looks like to likely to be the vehicle or figuring out which will be the vehicle for the Section 702 renewal. So unfortunately, we can't recap that for you, um, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. And we'll do you, I mean, do you really think what comes out of the House Rules Committee is the vehicle? Because there's this little pesky thing called the Senate, right? No, no, but look, this is how you guys start somewhere. And this is yeah. the thing that's going to come out of the House, it looks like, or some version of this might come out of the House. In any event, where's the story right now? That's where the story is. Yeah, fair. What the Senate does in a, in, in, in a rush to get this out the door by the 19th or afterwards, you know, that remains to be determined. And then uh, for frivolity... We have a sort of lightning round frivolity today. Yes. Uh, what have, we've got everything from, uh, now that we've both seen it... Acapella. Pitch, yeah, acapella. We've got Pitch Perfect 3. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> we've got, we've got uh, the Golden Globes. We'll, uh, we'll see if we have any gripes about how that went down. I've, I, ha- I have one or two. Do you? Although, although I will say... I was going to say, I would have thought you'd been very happy. I mean, I was very happy with the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel I, and I, Rachel I, Brosnahan. I knew you would be. And, oh, not, oh, we might have just spoiled something. We should, we should be careful here. Okay, if you don't, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel won for best comedy or whatever TV series, um, I, I can't help you. All right, so we'll break that down further, and then we'll wrap with our NFL uh, playoff preview. Uh, yes, the the Buccaneers and the Raiders. Oh wait, <laughs> good luck with that. that. Didn't go so. Yeah, well. That's worth what you pay for it for Seriously. sure. All right, so why don't we start with uh, uh, the most interesting news I think Bobby of the last week in our national security space. Um, 
as you know, last week in this space, we talked about how one of two things was likely happening in the John Doe habeas case to explain why we hadn't heard anything from the government. Either they were waiting for the emergency motions panel on the D.C. Circuit to turn over, or they were, in fact, effectuating Judge Chutkin's order by giving the ACLU access. Turns out it was the latter. Yep, they uh, they complied, and, and it was interesting. They apparently had ACLU over to the Pentagon for a uh, secure a VTC, a video teleconference, and someone from ACLU spoke to someone who's a U.S.-Saudi dual citizen held by the military in Iraq somewhere, and that person, surprise, surprise, said, yes, I would like to pursue habeas relief, and yes, I will accept the ACLU Foundation as my uh, counsel. And so on Friday, ACLU reported that to the court, and in the course of reporting that said, we would uh, ask the court to set the return date. The return is the effectively the answer that one files in response to a habeas petition. We'd like the return to be set for, oh, that'd be tomorrow, Steve. When, <laughs> Wednesday, up. January 10th. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. And, and then also, interestingly, saying we'd also, Judge, like you to reissue a ban, mm-hmm. uh, sort of their own travel ban, a ban on uh, transferring the detainee into Saudi or other foreign custody in kind, the meantime. Kind of a reverse travel ban. A reverse travel ban, a keeper ban, if you will, um, or a keeper requirement. So, Steve, here's how I think we ought to run through this. I think we ought to talk first about um, this question that the government has raised in their response, which is which dropped, you know, very recently. Um, is the petition actually properly filed in the first place? Secondly, if so, um, first of all, what is the return exactly? Like, what function does that play in habeas procedure? And, and and in light of that, when should the judge order it to be filed? Uh, so third, uh, in the meantime, should there be a, a transfer ban? And last, but definitely not least, and this is where we'll maybe dig into the merits the most, we'll talk about the merits. The merits. <laughs> the merits. Okay. Um, DOJ in its filing leads by saying, what are we doing here? Uh, we no longer are talking about next friend standing. According to the ACLU, they are now actually representing this guy, but the habeas petition isn't signed by this guy. It's not a verified petition. Therefore, it's no petition at all. And wake us up when... Before you go-go. No, no, no. I was thinking more like uh, more of the riff-off from Pitch Perfect 3, but wake... Isn't that a line in yes. the uh, riff-off? Yeah. yeah. So wake us up when you filed a verified petition uh, indicating this guy is the, the real party in interest. Uh, I can guess your reaction to this. Uh, <laughs> is there so any why, problem? So, so why don't you tell us your reaction to this? Since, since I think everyone can guess my reaction to this. Yeah, no, so I, I think it's a little crazy. They obviously can't have this guy sign and verify things. He's he's in, in otherwise incommunicado right. I mean, what, custody are we in the gonna military. Go, are we going to go another nine rounds on whether the ACLU should be allowed to send the freaking petition to Iraq to get his signature on it? Now, if we were going to, the statute, the federal habeas statute requires a verified petition. What's the right answer here? Obviously, there's a tremendous practical obstacle to doing so. They could. They could have immediately, ACLU could have immediately put into motion some kind of request to have him sign a verified petition. And in theory, maybe the government cooperates, maybe it doesn't, but you probably have to litigate that. I think the right answer is the ACLU should sign it as his next friend, right? That is to say, in this context, they'd be serving both as counsel and Ah, as petitioner. So it's not binary. So it's not binary, right? That is, just, And I think that's what happened in Hamdi and in Padilla, where the petitions were allowed to proceed before the lawyers ever actually met with the detainees in military custody. So, you know, I just, I, I don't think it is a good look for the government to be resting on what is, first of all, a 
hyper-technicality, and second, I think, an easily addressed and resolved hyper-technicality. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. This, this is not what my lead argument would be. No. Uh, it's not, as you say, a good look. Uh, and I would add that the very next thing said in the brief is a worse look. This uh, <laughs> business about, uh, there's sort of this line that I'm, I'm only loosely paraphrasing here. By the way, when you do file that, uh, time for the ACLU to reveal your client's real name. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask how you feel about that one. What? Why? I mean, like, what is the argument? I mean, so if 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 the if the unnamed U.S. citizen actually wants his name to be withheld, right? He's allowed upon proper showing by his counsel to keep his name private. They'd have to be in communication with him to be able to know if that's what he wants. I suppose they could have asked. And so I guess, we, or actually, they represented right. that, that is what he wants, right? right? No, no, no. Said a- apparently, that was one of the things they asked, was whether he wanted to be to, for the case yeah. to proceed anonymously. Right, and he wanted to preserve his privacy. Now, I, I don't actually know anything about what the exact precedents are in terms of when you can pre- proceed anonymously in this fashion. I mean, there's, I there's, there's, actually, there's thorough case law on this, right? Because right. this actually happens, Bobby, all the time in the context of family law. Right where you have, say, minor children involved, right, and the question is, you know, I, there's it's a balancing test about the sort of public interest in the identity of the individual versus. Well, that's that's what I thought was right. kind of odd here. Um, I, I do think the public has has a particular interest in knowing more about who. But this it individual might be is. superseded at least at least initially, mm-hmm. right, by the by the detainee's privacy rights. I mean, yeah. I guess my question is, nothing is stopping the government from outside of the well, context of litigation. That's where I really want to go. The whole thing is, it, it's super bizarre because up until this moment, the government has refused to disclose and is still refusing to disclose the guy's identity. They say in the brief, and here I think we might be getting a glimpse into the the, the gaps that can emerge when you've got DOD and you've got, you've got a, a service or, or combatant command administered detention going on in the field. And then you've got DOJ civil division taking litigation positions. Uh, the brief says... Uh, we previously have not disclosed the detainee's name because of this idea that in the law of armed conflict, you're not supposed to expose someone to uh, public curiosity, which n- never mind whether that's really applicable to keeping the name uh, non-public. I'm not sure that actually follows quite. It also never stopped the Bush administration from identifying Hamdi or Padilla. Well, it's not. It's not stop. Yeah, no, it's never. It's not a very persuasive argument, I think, on its face. But uh, the brief goes out of its way to say that's no longer a concern now that the person has decided uh, that he does want counsel. Um, but then there's nothing that falls from that explaining. So why isn't the government now explaining who the guy is? If that concern has dropped out, what's the holdup? And, and, and in light of the fact that there doesn't seem to be a holdup according to DOJ's position, uh, what's the logic of objecting to ACLU trying to proceed anonymously? Is it Oh, suddenly the government's on the side of the public's interest in knowing who the guy is. I, but it, it just all fe- it all feels like just taking litigation positions for the sake of creating friction. Not just friction, but also uh, a delay, right? Because right. if each of these issues has to be litigated, there we go again. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of delay, the the, the let's assume none of that's going to ho- hopefully hold the court up too much. Um, the next question is about the return. Um, we need to talk, I think before we talk about when the return should be filed or what the, what Judge Chutkin ought to do in this dispute, we should be clear about what a return is, right? So um, my sense is that it functions as the answer, that the petition uh, requests or makes an assertion that there's either a lack of legal grounds for the detention or lack of evidentiary grounds or both. Uh, and then the function of the return is if nothing else, to state clearly what the asserted legal grounds are. And in my impression is um, to say something, at least something cursory and summary about what the 
uh, outline of the facts are that trigger that legal grounds. But it's not the showing of evidence itself. You don't get to that. Just like the filing of a complaint and the, the filing of an answer, that doesn't set up the factual dispute. It helps narrow what might be contested and what might not be. The detainee then files a traverse, which would take issue with whatever it is that's in the uh, return or the answer right. uh, that, that is contested between them. And then you go off to have a fact-finding or a, an evidentiary process if necessary yep. in light of all that. Yep. So is, is that about right? Yes. Okay. So DOJ says, ACLU said we'd like it by Wednesday the 10th. DOJ has countered with a, well, let me, let's get into the details of exactly what they requested. It's ACLU said they've asked for six weeks. Um, yeah, it's something like that. Uh, here, here's how it works, right? There's, there's a federal statute, 28 U.S. Code. Section 2243, when you have a properly fire, filed habeas petition, uh, ordinarily the return's due in three days. Yep. Now, wow, three days, Steve. That's a quick turnaround. That underscores the point that the return is a somewhat cursory uh, filing, the central point of which is should not be a mystery to the government. That is, what's your legal ground yeah, right, for detaining for whole, this right, person? Right. What's the basic summary of the facts that made you think you should go out and grab them? Surely you should know this if you're detaining the person. By now. But, and, and, and that's true in general. If you've been detaining someone for four months and habeas petition litigation has been pending at the threshold for stage. For three months. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think this is of a piece with the government's broader theory that until they formally decide what the long-term fate of John Doe is going to be, they can't be compelled to you know, provide the requisite processes, right? That, that the relevant clocks don't start until some abstract governmental decision point. And I think your point's really important. The habeas statute itself says otherwise. Yep. No, this is well, and Judge Chutkin has said otherwise, right? <laughs> well, she, you know, so, who's she? Yeah. Um, so here's what DOJ says. That was, that was a joke, by the way. Just, okay. <laughs> DOJ says. Um, <clears throat> DOJ says under the statute, the triggering for the calendar, the triggering event is the filing of the proper verified petition. That hasn't yet happened yet, so we don't even have the starting gun. They say once that they say they've got 20 days to do that. And this, the, the, this, this, this empty hyperformalism, I think, is, is counterproductive and cannot be necessarily getting – it can't necessarily be getting in Judge Chuckin's good graces. I think, I think they think that ship has sailed. Yes. Well, um, and, it, and that the ship that matters now is the uh, just delay until you can get the deal going. And that's why all the action, as we'll say in a moment, is maybe the transfer. The transfer. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they're saying, uh, first of all, we don't even start the clock. The calendar's not moving. What clock? Until, what what so, habeas petition? Exactly. Once it does – there's, the statute says you get three days return, but for good cause, you can get 20 more days. So they say we want the full 20-day extension. So 23 plus, they don't actually, it's interesting, They don't in their windup, they don't say when the petition's filed. They say since they have 20 days to file from the, to file a proper petition, let's just assume 20 days and then add on the 23, 43 days is what, uh, what we ought to get. That's pretty remarkable. Um, so, so if you're giving me over under, I'm taking the under on yeah, okay. what Judge Chuckin's going to allow. All right. So here's our chance to say what we. If you're the judge, Steve, how many days do you give them to file? I give them two weeks. Oh, okay. I I was sure you were going to come in single digit. No, because I think if you if you give them two weeks, you avoid an appealable issue. Yeah. Right. Like like if if the, if if Judge Chuckin turns around and says like the statute contemplates twenty days, right? She ruled on December twenty third. Um, the ACLU made its representations in response to her ruling on Friday, January fifth. Right, twenty days from now is the twenty. Uh, or two weeks from now is the twenty third. 
right? That's basically roughly 20 days from when the representations were filed in the court. So if you're DOJ, is this pretty much what you figure you'll end up with and therefore ask for the moon so that when the salami gets sliced, it ends up back? It is possible. I mean, it's possible that this is an opposition program, right, designed to produce a sort of compromise that might still be generous under the terms of the statute. But frankly, I mean, listen, this is not a typical case. I mean, even I would have a hard time finding no good cause, right, to at least provide the statutory period. I I guess, I mean, I can... Given what the returns function is, right. you know this isn't the this isn't your response to a motion for summary judgment. It's right. nothing like that. Right. This is the preliminary. Here's our legal basis for here's our factual yeah. legal predicate for detention. And the petition wasn't actually just filed. None of this is a surprise or new. So I, I actually think uh, I may actually uh, come down short of you in a price, is, a price is right like move undercutting you. Although if I, unless I get under one, it's not really say, price is right. You got, you got, you got bid like one minute. One minute. I got to get one over. over you, right? Yeah, if yeah, it's price is right. One like. over me. If you're, uh, although then we could both be over and then no one wants the showcase showdown. Exactly. Which is why it's not price is right. Like we're instead doing, uh, closest to the pole. We're doing, we're doing horseshoes here. It's like, who's closest to the pole. And so I think, uh, I think, uh, nine days. All this is just to say, right. That, that, that sometime this month, one way or the other, Ought right? Be the return. The the return should be coming in. Well, and the return and the return's going to say. Right, we know what it's going to say. Right, in a moment we'll get to the merits and talk about what it's going to say. None of this is a big surprise. They could probably write it right now. Hell, it's probably already on the uh, yep. on the drive waiting to be printed. All right, um, the transfer issue. Yeah, we both think this, the is, in the room. this is the big thing. Yes. All right, so um, the uh, ACLU has requested a renewed ban on transferring him out of custody. Their steady ground, if I recall what they wrote correctly, their steady ground is not uh, fear of torture or mis- mis- uh, mistreatment. It is do not allow a transfer that would defeat habeas jurisdiction. And I guess I, I have a real problem with that. Do you? So I have, I think I have less of a problem with it than I think you do, which is not to say I have no problem with it. So okay. there, there is a whole lot of case law. Um, and I think the canonical case to cite for this proposition is ex parte endo, the companion internment case mm-hmm. to Korematsu, for the proposition that transferring someone out of the jurisdiction of a court does not of itself deprive the court of jurisdiction over his habeas petition. And the idea of that case law is to prevent a government officer, right, from bouncing someone around simply to defeat judicial right. review. No, no three-card Monty. No three-card Monty. Um you know, I, I think it's a closer question whether that principle applies to transfers to foreign custody, especially where there is some kind of plausible claim. And I don't know if there is here that the transfer is not is not severing all ties. That the U.S. is not renouncing any sort of role in what happens to the detainee once they're in the custody of the foreign sovereign. So I completely agree that there is an anti-three-card Monty principle that goes back to not just American habeas tradition, but the English Common habeas law. tradition yep. from which it comes. Yep. That's and, and for darn good reason. Um, the unspoken premise in it is transferring where you've still got control. The only and, and key purpose of habeas is, of course, to uh, test the legality of the detention. Yep. Um, and if the point, if what the government's trying to accomplish is to stop detaining someone, it can't be that habeas can be a vehicle for making them continue to hold someone. So, which is, I, which is the Chief Justice's point in Munaf. Exactly so. And so I don't think, unless they have some basis beyond speculation to assert that a transfer, for example, to his other country of nationality, Saudi Arabia, um, for for the Saudis to hold or, or just to monitor the guy right. or whatever it is the Saudis are going to do, unless there's some way to show it's constructive custody on 
behalf of the United States. I think this is a total non-starter. So I'm sure it's a total non-starter. I think it's a meritless argument, right? But <laughs> but but there's a fine distinction. Well, no, because the question, right? We're talking about interim relief pending disposition of the merits, right? Fair enough. And and I think the question is, is there reason enough to believe that John Doe, whoever he is, could have a plausible constructive custody objection? So um, who's the burden on to prove it if you're seeking that kind of extraordinary relief? Well, so in if it's this so, I mean, listen, the you know, it's four, it's the traditional four prongs, right? For for a preliminary injunction, likelihood of success on the merits, right? Which here is listen, it's low. I mean, <laughs> yep, okay. it, it, it's low. All right, so, um, but it's not zero, right? Uh, sure, because um, it is right. possible, of course, that there would be constructive right. custody, and that's what's taken so long. Saudis don't want him. Right. We're trying to make them do it. Irreparable harm is high because, on the government's theory, once he's in Saudi custody, that's it. That's it. Right. Um, public interest, I think, you know, you could argue that in it goes both, both ways. ways yeah. Right. So, you know, it's a balancing of the yeah. equities. Yeah. So I guess uh, as as a bedding man, I would say uh, probably there's she Judge Shutkin issued such a ban before she. But pending, but only, but, but right. there, right. So it's worth stressing. The original ban was that the government should not be able to transfer him before. He's had a chance to meet with a lawyer and been advised of his rights. That has now happened. Yeah. I, I just saying, like, I don't think the argument was especially good then. I don't think it's any good now. I think it was um, better then. I think she's possibly going to do it. She probably shouldn't. I think if she does it. I mean, if she does it, it's appealable. Exactly. And that's the issue that we thought that we yes. talked about earlier we yes. thought was going to get appealed. And, and I could easily see almost any panel of the D.C. Circuit not being super cool with a with a transfer ban. No, that's right. And, and uh, obviously, Munaf looms large. Kiamba uh, two looms so large. So Kiamba two, you know, it's, it's, I'm I'm glad you raised Kiamba two because there's you know the government obviously makes a big deal out of so sure. Kiamba two is the second one of the Uyghur cases. Um, it's it's the one that's cited at five sixty one F third five oh nine. That one. That one. Uh, well, just to just to distinguish it from Kiamba no, one and absolutely, three. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I only tease because I can't quote them like that, and I'm always so impressed when you do. Well, you got you got to point out that I'm not actually reading this off of anything. No, right? that's absolutely right. No, um, that's, that's amazing. As, as I toot my own horn. Um, so so Kiamba two is about the similar concern in the context of the Guantanamo detainees. Um, but Kiamba 2 is laden with analysis that is non-citizen specific, right? And so I would be very resistant to, you know, assuming that the same analytical considerations that drove the circuit into Kiamba 2 would apply to a citizen. I think the much better argument for the government is forget Kiamba 2. Yeah, just Munaf. Just Munaf. Yeah, right? which and, has the virtue of being a Supreme Court precedent. Well, but also one involving a citizen detained in Iraq. Exactly. Um, and, no, it's, and, it's, it's very relevant. Right, and where, where the chief justice, I mean, we talked about Munaf before, right, where yep. the whole sort of all the, the the only real substantive claim that Munaf contemplates in the context of a U.S. citizen trying to block their transfer is a claim under FARA, the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act of 1998, um, a claim that the citizen fears torture and other forms of cruel and human or degrading treatment. And, you know, I don't know enough about the facts to know if in the context of Saudi Arabia that's a relevant consideration here, but that's the ballgame. And it's a little hard to imagine that argument, that somehow this guy's fact pattern with a potential transfer to Saudi Arabia would be more appealing and escape the shadow of Munaf, uh, where, where Iraq was the receiving party. Yeah, so two things can be paused about that, right? One, um, I think it's safe to say that a federal court, that, that the Supreme Court in 2008 might have had a better, um, um, set a better, better feeling toward the coalition Iraqi government than a court today would have toward the Saudi government when it comes to human rights. Um, but yeah. but leaving that aside, right, um, there may be case-specific reasons 
right? Perhaps this particular detainee has a history with the Mahbi, the Saudi intelligence agency, right? Like there, you never know yeah. if there's some unique fortuitous fact about this case. So if you're ACLU and you're listening to this, maybe what you should be insisting upon is that nothing should happen. You got to hold things in place until such time that they're able to talk in more at more length with we their clients right. to see whether they can develop a record that begins to build out a fear of torture, a, a distinguishable fear of torture claim. And, and this is where I think the distinction between Kiamatu and Munaf does matter. Because Munaf um, was basically that uh, a merits determination, whereas Kiamatu was you don't even get a hearing, right? And if Kiamatu is not controlling in the case of a U.S. citizen, I think there's a plausible argument that Doe is at least entitled to a hearing on the transfer issue before the transfer could happen. Interesting question whether is this in his interest? Because if you think about it from his point of view, what's at stake here? He's already in custody. He's yeah. in U.S. military custody. Um, he'd end up in Saudi custody. Does he want, a, does he want more protracted custody by the U.S. in Iraq? I mean, who knows? It, right? So let me just say, I, I think it depends on, on, on something to which you and I are not privy, which is the nature of the, we assume it exists, deal that the government is proposing. That's right. Right? Because presumably the government is not going to involuntarily, you know, presumably at least part of the calculus here is that the government would prefer a situation where Doe voluntarily um, acquiesces in the transfer in exchange for, as in Hamdi, perhaps relinquishing his American citizenship, mm-hmm. agreeing to travel restrictions, whatever, right? That that's the best case scenario for the government because that's litigation proof mostly. Yeah. Um, if it's involuntary, that's where you have the potential for litigation. All right. So all of that's sort of the, the procedural and threshold stuff. But assume, but, right, no, no, but assume, right, that this, that this Gordian knot can't be cut, right? That either the, the government is, the, either the government is bound by a transfer restriction that's not reversed on appeal, yeah. or even without a transfer restriction, the government is unable, as it has been for the last four months, to reach the requisite kind of agreement with Saudi Arabia. What's left then are the merits. That's right. And so let's preview the merits. Finally, at long last, we had a joint post up at Lawfare we did. this morning. People should read it. Yeah, check it out. It kind of goes into some detail, but we'll, we'll talk it through this time. Hopefully, it'll be vaguely consistent with what we wrote. What did we write? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Let's, let's speculate. <laughs> um, there are legal issues, and then, of course, there are evidentiary issues. Let's talk about the law first. Yeah. Um, there are two big issues. Uh, the first one could be raised by any detainee who's in a position to assert habeas rights, uh, citizen or foreigner, and that's the classic, is the Islamic State within the scope of the 2001 AUMF or the 2002 AUMF or the fiscal year 2012 NDAA, which has detention provisions sort of layered in above the 2001 AUMF, though not the 2002 AUMF. Although although you and I may disagree about the relevance of the 2012 NDAA, right? Because there is the good old chestnut, the Feinstein Amendment, which doesn't, which which says nothing in the 2012 NDAA affects one way or the other. Right. The detention authority, as specifically applied to U.S. citizens anywhere or non-citizens arrested within the United States. So I, I tend to think of the NDAA's uh, the the 2012 as like clarifying. ND- yeah, I think of it as just sort of this uh, sort of a supplement that's sort of a, that hangs on to the back of or has been layered on top of the 2001 AMF, saying, look, just so we're all clear, setting aside what may or may not otherwise be true one way or the other about citizens, here's just clarity from Congress that we did mean the 2001 statute to include detention authority along the lines of what the Guantanamo habeas process has in in the Obama and Bush administrations had cooked up. Um, So the question is, uh, is the Islamic State within the scope of it? Um, you know, I, we talked about this before. Uh, when I first heard the Obama administration argument that you could just assimilate 
the Islamic State to an associated force of Al-Qaeda, I thought it was preposterous at first blush because the Islamic State had rather famously broken up with Al-Qaeda. It had had a tie before and then had a leadership dispute over control of al-Nusra in Syria. And, and famously, uh, al-Baghdadi said, well, right, screw you, al-Qaeda central, we're going independent. And by the way, we're going to you know, abandon your cautious approach and we're going to go ahead and declare an Islamic state. And by the way, that's going to be our name from now on. We're no longer what they were. What were they before? They were al-Qaeda in Iraq. And over time, I've really come to appreciate that, that that's pretty damn salient. This is the you know direct descendant. This is the organization that was associated with uh, Zarqawi in the past. Um, AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, clearly was in, in my opinion, clearly in the scope of the 01 and 02 AUMFs during the heyday of the U.S. ground presence in Iraq pr- previously. And I don't think its subsequent falling out with the uh, with the Al-Qaeda leadership changes that. So for me, there's litigation risk here because it's never been tested in a U.S. court before. And why would you want to incur litigation risk at all just for this John Doe character? But I think they'd probably win ultimately. So I'm, as, as, as I think folks know, because we've had this conversation, I think, 14 or 15 times now in our 53 episodes, I'm a little more skeptical. And part of why I'm skeptical is because I'm not sure I agree with the underlying premise that AQI would have clearly been within the ambit of the 2001 authorization for the military force. I totally agree about 2002, right? I mean, AQI is clearly within the scope of the armed conflict Congress authorized in Iraq, right? But with regard to the 2001 AUMF, I mean, let's remember the text of that statute says those nations, persons, or organizations that committed the attacks of September, on September 11th or harbored such nations, such organizations or persons, right? And I just, I, I've... I've so you don't agree with the associated forces concept? Well, let me put it this way. I think the associated forces concept is um, legally vulnerable in any context in which the government needs more than just implicit congressional approval. And this is why I think— But why the, isn't the 2012—the the NDAA FY12 a complete answer to that? Because it is expressly as can be done says associated forces And it included. just as expressly says this doesn't apply to citizens. And well, so we're not I, talking about citizens No, 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 yet. but, but hold on. But, but, wait, but this is my point, though, right? Which is I actually—in our post, we separated out what we saw as the two big merits questions. Right. Does the AOMF cover ISIS? And even if it does, does the non-detention act, which only applies to citizens, cause mischief? I actually think these questions are not separable, um, right? That I actually think the question whether the AUMF applies to ISIS in this context, i.e. with sufficient clarity so as to authorize the detention of an American citizen, um, makes this a much harder case for the government than it would be in any other context, right? I mean, the only facts that would make this a worse case for the government is if Doe was arrested here in the United States. There's no question that would make this a vastly harder case. However, going back to the the the, the anti-distinction you're drawing, that this isn't a distinction, uh, I actually think you have to keep them separate because it can't be the case that the Islamic State is an associated force when it's got foreign members, but within a citizen member, it's not an associated no, no, but force. Second, I'm not saying that it's not an associated force. I'm saying that, that, that the AUMF can't barely be read to authorize the detention. of. So, so that's what I'm saying is the Non-Detention Act, I think, is doing work. That the, so whatever the AMF authorizes in the abstract, right? The Non-Detention Act, I think, is a more than just implicit statement requirement. I just think that that's we, we're, our second big issue, and we're going to talk about yeah. it now, is the Non-Detention Act. But I think it just is a different question from is the Islamic State 
regardless of who's yeah. me- which member we're talking about, yeah. is it an associated so listen, force? If you accept the associated forces framework, yes. and if the factual predicate that you know the Islamic State is derivative of AQI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is all borne out, right? Then I think that's a, that's a non-frivolous argument and perhaps enough to tilt the scales. My point is just that I don't think that a judge would be able to sort of cleave these off quite as neatly oh, as we I th- are. I, th- I think it's, that's part A, here's right. part B. So, so let's, let's do part, part B. B. Yeah. Okay. All right, the Non-Detention Act. It looms really large here. This is the thing that is only an issue if you've got a U.S. person, as we do here. U.S. citizen. U.S. citizen. Sorry, yeah, that's right. So lawful permanent residence, no love under the Non-Detention Act. Nope. And that's something to set the conspiracy fires burning. No, I mean, listen, the the... So I, my very first paper in law school was about the Non-Detention Act. Like I, you know, and and the history of the Non-Detention Act, I think, explains why it's only about citizens, right? The Non-Detention Act was enacted by Congress in 1971, partly in response to, you know, growing discontentment about the internment camps and the internment from World War II, from World War II and not just the, and and, and what, what I think at least at that time was viewed as the most pernicious part of the internment camps, which was not the general internment of individuals of Japanese descent, but rather the specific internment of American citizens of Japanese descent. Um, But also it was a response to a provision in the 1950 Emergency Detention Act, which had authorized the internal security detention of political subversives. Right. There's some pretty crazy stuff from there. And this was part of the larger reform wave in the 70s to try to put to bed and through statutory means prevent certain things people were afraid could well happen in a moment of exigency. Exactly. And so and so this is why I think the Non-Detention Act actually has a special salience in this context, because the government actually argued early in Hamdi and Padilla that the Non-Detention Act wasn't about this at all. Right. I think this is exactly what the Non-Detention Act is like. Secure, you know, uh, national security emergency detention as opposed to... And to me, it, it feels very far removed because you do have this sort of Japanese internment style domestic sphere intervention of non-criminal detention for security purposes that to me is very distinguishable. And you know, obviously, like almost sort of the, the maximum of civil liberties concern versus a combat zone overseas where somebody's captured in a combat zone. I just think that's a it's a sensitive situation. Yeah, but not nearly as sensitive if, as domestic. Again, right. It, it, if you think. Right, that that statutes like the AUMF are clearly authorizing certain things, and so this is where Hamdi comes in. Right, so there so, we go. That's so that's the big Kahuna. Right, the right. So the Supreme Court, the the only the only time the Supreme Court has interpreted the AUMF at all in its 16 and a half years on the books was in the Hamdi case in 2004. Um, and in Hamdi, as I think our listeners probably know, um, right, a four justice plurality interpreted the AUMF to satisfy the Non-Detention Act because it provided, um, it, Bobby, it was sufficiently clear from the principles of the, and the laws of war that detention was inherent and incident to um, combat operations in an active zone of hostilities. As indeed it is. Um, the court was well aware that the United States was employing what was, to, to many observers, a controversial spin on the traditional model of detaining an enemy combatant for the duration of hostilities, where these were enemy fighters and being detained on the combatant model, but they weren't also getting the benefits of, of a uh, privileged belligerent, which is specifically to say they were not immune from prosecution for their war-related conduct that was not itself a violation of the law of armed conflict, court understood this was an unlawful enemy combatant model and said, look, if the facts are as you say, that is, if this guy was an armed Afghan Taliban fighter um, captured in Afghanistan, then yeah, he's detainable for the duration of hostilities, at least as long as there's conventional armed conflict going on. But, right, and here we get to the but. So the big but is Justice O'Connor's— Oh, wait, we should add, just so it's clear— 
Hamdi was a citizen, all right? So right. Hamdi was a dual citizen, not unlike John Doe. Correct. Um, now, but ju- um, Justice O'Connor's opinion, I think, is quite clear, however, that the opinion was very Afghanistan-specific, um, which was not to preclude the possibility of lawful detention in other contexts. Yeah, it's but a just floor. The court was, but, I mean, right, but that Hamdi was actually deciding very little about the scope of the AUMF. And just to, to drive that home, this is what Justice Breyer, um, right, who, who, if you actually peel away the layers, was the swing vote in Hamdi, right? Breyer's the one who actually, because Scalia was dissenting. No, but, but Thomas gives them a fit. Thomas's separate concurrence no, no, would give them a But Breyer's the one who was most likely to have not thought that the detention was lawful, right? Oh, so you like, mean from within the plurality? So from what, right, the, that of the, gotcha. of, right, so the, the court, gotcha. the okay. court votes five to four to uphold Hamdi's detention. And of Breyer's the five the in the most... majority, Breyer was the most vulnerable. Got it, okay. Right, so, and indeed, Breyer actually is the is the only one of those five who turns around in the Padilla case and joins the footnote. I think it's footnote eight of Justice Stevens's dissent that says Padilla's attention was unlawful. So Breyer looked like he was yeah. ready to split the difference. Yep. Um, in a de- in a statement respecting the denial of certiorari in a 2014 case called Hussein, Justice Breyer went out of his way to say. By the way, everybody, we haven't decided very much about the AUMF. And I just want to quote him, um, if you don't mind. Please. He said, the court has not directly addressed whether the AUMF authorizes and the Constitution permits detention on the basis that an individual was part of al-Qaeda or part of the Taliban, but was not engaged in an armed conflict against the United States in Afghanistan prior to his capture, nor have we considered whether assuming detention on these bases is permissible, either the AUMF or the Constitution limits the duration of detention. And that was in a case involving a non-citizen, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Presumably, there's all the more reason to reach those questions in a case involving a citizen. So all I'm saying is Hamdi is obviously the best case for the government, but you have to assume that it applies. It's not obvious to me that it applies a fortiori to these facts. So it all depends on what the necessary conditions are for the analogy to work. And that, that's assuming that Hamdi is not just the floor, but the ceiling on the government's mm-hmm. detention authority. And mm-hmm. I think it's far from obviously to be the ceiling. But but it's obviously best for the government if they can show, look, this is, this is on all fours with Hamdi. Um, so is it? Clearly, O'Connor, like Breyer's language you just read, O'Connor in her plurality goes out of her way to say, look, this is all kind of based on the assumption that we have a conventional conflict underway, which we clearly did between two, late 2001 and in the time of Hamdi in summer 2004. Um, is it that is Breyer or, or uh, O'Connor saying that, look, it's just Afghanistan is a particular physical location in the world where the AMF applies? Or is it that they were saying Afghanistan in those circumstances reflected the level of conflict you need to have detention, to have detention being necessarily incident to the law? To of me, war. I, I think it's 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 nearly obvious. It's contestable, but close to obvious that it's the latter. That they're saying there's got to be armed conflict. There's nothing about the AMA AUMF that says Afghanistan in particular is the place where these. Oh, authorities of course, run. I agree with that. Yeah. All I'm suggesting, all I'm positing, is that 14 years later. Right, a court might not be in a hurry to assume that analysis that was Afghanistan specific in 2004 applies anywhere else in the world where you can point to the existence of ongoing combat operations. I, I can't tell if US we disagree troops. or not, but I don't think the question is Afghanistan specific. I think it's armed conflict specific, and the passage of time is not relevant. What's relevant is is there a Does circumstance- O'Connor say it's not relevant? 
the passage of time. She says that if the circumstances over time change, the circumstances, not the passage of time and you don't think as the, and such. You don't think the, you don't think the, relative, the circumstances that she was talking if about we, have changed? If, you, if we stipulate that the, the nature of the U.S. involvement remains exactly as it was at the time of her writing in summer 2004, same number of troops, same number of sorties, same weapon systems, same types of engagements, the idea that, yeah, it just... Uh, you know, no longer armed conflict for the duration of hostilities because we don't really mean the duration of hostilities. We mean for a while, hopefully they won't go on that long. I, just, I, don't, I don't think so. What, what I think is pretty clear is that the circumstance of the United States against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, at least until recently, has been pretty analogous with lighter footprint on the ground, but not no footprint on the ground. Um, if anything, probably a, a longer and more sustained pace of air operations as compared to summer 2004 in Afghanistan, I think it's really analogous in contrast to, say, Somalia or Yemen or other places where we have a much lighter footprint and more episodic engagement. So I think if there's any place that there's ever been in amidst the various non-Afghan engagements with al-Qaeda-related entities where you could say, look, this is a lot like Hamdi, the place where you most plausibly have a claim of ongoing real you know, no one can deny it armed conflict and the U.S. is clearly a party to it. That's it. So I think that's going to be enough. And the one wild card I throw in against my own analysis is um, that claim is a lot easier to make when the Islamic State's holding territory. Right. We've had tremendous, the coalition's had tremendous success in driving them out of their major urban strongholds. They do still have pockets of territory. We're not yet to the point where you've reached the case that O'Connor anticipates, which is over time, the circumstances could unravel and it begins to look differently, begins to look a little bit more like episodic counterterrorism. So I don't think that John Doe is going to be distinguishable ultimately from Hamdi, but you, this case goes on long enough. And if the nature of U.S. involvement in uh, the counter-Islamic state fight changes enough, maybe it would look differently. So I guess all I would say is I think you're glossing over one important distinction, right, which is at the time Hamdi, you're talking about the summer of 2004, O'Connor was talking about the time Hamdi was captured, right, and the time Hamdi was captured, we were engaged in a basically international armed conflict, Not, I mean, we were engaged in both, right, an IAC against the Taliban-backed government of Afghanistan and a NIAC with al-Qaeda, right? That's not what's happening in Syria right now. Well, I, I don't agree that, that not... Hamdi's. You think Hamdi? You think she's only characterizing the moment of capture? I mean, her own rule is we've got to keep monitoring you know, the situation. Not only, but just that. Just that. I just. I resist. I, I completely agree that the circuit that the alleged circumstances of Doe's capture at least superficially resemble the circumstances of Hamdi's, right? Even down sure. to the... It, clearly, it's, right? it's weirdly right. analogous. I just am not as convinced that the nature of the conflict. Uh, that the nature of the sort of active combat operations in Syria, both at the time Doe was captured in September and today, are as are as on on all fours with what was true in Afghanistan at all the times. But listen, we can agree to disagree. I mean, I think well, the, we're going to have to. The, the point is just right that again, if you're the government, right, there are reasons to be worried. You you might be confident that you should win this, but there is not zero litigation risk here. Right. So, so Marty and a few others had asked, uh, you know, do we, you know, how, how much risk do we, they basically asked, how much risk do you think the government's really taking here? Um, and I think you think it's a little more risky than I do. I think they're, I think they're very likely to win on the Hamdi point, if you will, on Non-Detention Act. And I think they're 
pretty likely to win on the Islamic State AUMF point. Um, so I think on the legal foundations for this detention, I think they're actually in quite good shape. I, I, I agree that it's not frivolous and they're incurring risk and you never know what's going to happen. But I think they're on pretty good grounds. And I sense that you're not there with me on maybe both of those points. So listen, I, I think the, the difference is that I read the Non-Detention Act as more of a clear statement rule than you do. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that and, and to be frank, this has been something that separated you and me for a long time and, and me and a lot of folks who are of similar, I think, general disposition to you in this space. Right. Do you, but does that separate you also from the Hamdi plurality? So I again, it depends on how narrow it depends on how literally. Yeah. Right. And specifically, you read O'Connor's opinion. And I guess the question is whether you honestly believe that if Justice O'Connor had the exact same case, had this case today. Right. She would say, I already answered this question in Hamdi. Oh, yeah. I don't think Absolutely. so. Oh, I think that's exactly what she'd say. 14 years later, with no movement on the AUMF, with the conflict. Expi- See, I just. Yes. I, you, I think I think for you to take that position, you have to be able to point to something substantively that's j- salient and different about what the conflict of the Islamic State is compared to what she was looking at in summer 2004. And, and I think that if we had more, I mean, we've already spent 40 minutes talking about this. And so I think we should probably <laughs> stop. But I just I, I think that it is. There are there are ways to distinguish what's true about the U.S. operations against the Islamic State in Syria today from what was true about the U.S. operations in Afghanistan in 2004. Well, I think we'll agree to disagree, but that just illustrates that there's uncertainty the government may be wary of, and they should be asking, is it really worth the risk? Well, there you go. Let's uh, let's race through what remains. Enough ACLU v. Mattis. Speaking of speaking of of litigation risk. Should we talk about Dalmazi? Let's talk Dalmazi. Okay, Steve, you're going in Supreme Court of the United States. I am soon. And it's sober. I better, and, get, I better get a suit. <laughs> now, tell me, why does the case matter in the grand scheme of things? This is, a sort of, in many ways, a very in-the-weeds uh, statutory analysis involving some, what, of course, you and I think are endlessly interesting uh, <laughs> arcana about these 19th are, are, are you saying we're not the relevant audience? And, and, and of course, I think the, the court will likewise find this all endlessly interesting. But um, at this level, y- you need a sort of a, a larger story. What is your larger story of why this matters? So I, I actually think that I, I had one answer to that question until last week, and I think I now have two. Um, uh-huh. So so let me start with what, why I think it matters. So the statute at the heart of Dalmazi is this obscure, but I think quietly important old, old statute um, that I basically call the dual office holding ban. And it's a statute that basically says, uh, if you are an active duty military officer, you may not also hold a second office in either the federal or state or local government unless Congress has expressly authorized you to do so. So much like the Posse Comitatus Act, right, a statute that limits when the military can be used for ordinary civilian law enforcement, and Bobby also requires a clear statement, the idea behind the dual office holding ban, which was actually enacted not long before the Posse Comitatus Act, is we're not going to prohibit military officers from, say, holding cabinet positions, right, or um, being judges, right, or other, but Congress has to expressly authorize it if it's going to happen. Um, and the base, you know, so the, one of the fights in our case is, has Congress authorized it? Whatever, that's case specific. Um, the statute is actually a really important structural principle because it protects civilian control of the military. Um, it ensures that you don't have a situation where the cabinet is actually run by a bunch of generals. Um, right? And, where and you can act- you talk about the historical origins of the act and why that was something that would have mattered to Congress at Yeah. That I mean, so the act was, uh, the ban was originally enacted in 1870, right? So right after the Civil War, when you had a huge military establishment 
compared to a relatively small executive branch, right? Relatively small civilian government in Washington. And Congress yeah, this was- This is pre-civil services, the age of patronage, yep. and, the, and then the aftermath of the Civil War in the thick of Reconstruction. And so Congress is especially worried that the, that the wrong sort of people will just sort of use patronage hires to insinuate military officers into all kinds of senior civilian positions, and that overnight, the military will basically be in charge of the civilian government. And just, you know, for better or for worse, this is one of the deep tensions of the Reconstruction period, right? What role for military authority? What role for civilian authority? And so Congress says, listen, we're not going to generally allow active duty officers to hold office unless we specifically approve it. Um, so in 1873, for example, the attorney general concludes that based on this statute, um, General Sherman, who was then the commander in chief of the Union Army, could not even serve on a temporary basis as acting secretary of war. Um, and that's the tradition, right? That's why we don't tend to have generals in the cabinet. That's why John Kelly had to re had to retire before he could become Secretary of Homeland Security. Congress has gone even further, right, for Secretary of Defense has required an extra waiting period. So the statute matters wholly apart from this case. Got it. Because I think it protects, it, it, it keeps people in their lanes. It keeps the civilian government in charge of, you know, run by civilians, keeps the military in the military. Okay, so then layer in the nuance. What's what's the essential problem with what's happened here? Well, so so there's a, so the second thing. That's oh yeah, come right. Up, you said there's right? a second big issue. So the 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 court did something very strange on Friday. Um, it granted argument time to a non-governmental amicus. Um, to our friend uh, Aditya Bamzai, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, and Aditya has a sort of. Um, forgive me for a sort of a, an academic word, an orthogonal, right? A sort of. Um, <laughs> extraneous right jurisdictional objection, which is that constitutionally the Supreme Court has no authority to even review the court martial system because it's all located in the executive branch and because the Supreme Court can't issue writs directly to the executive branch, see Marbury versus Madison. That's that is in many ways, at least for geeks like us, so awesome. We've got a Mar Marbury versus Madison, not not sort of a sort of bigger picture Marbury, but like like narrow picture Mar mm -hmm. Marbury, precise holding attack, a collateral attack on your case, yep. in effect. Yeah, no, not just on my case, but on whether the Supreme Court can ever hear cases from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. In direct review. In direct review. Yeah. And listen, collateral review is messy because the standard of review in a habeas case attacking a court-martial conviction is incredibly deferential. Um, right? It's, it's not even, it's just whether the military didn't consider the underlying constitutional claim. Well, so we could take a little time now and we can we can either or both do the following things. We can talk about the particulars, uh, the main lines of attacking your argument, um, or we could dig into this orthogonal Marbury versus Madison issue. What's your, pick your poison. I think the latter. I think, I mean, folks who are curious about the former, so Amy Howe has a fantastic preview of the case up on SCOTUS blog today, and I think folks will probably do much better with her common sense dissection of the merits than my I've been doing this for a year dissection of the merits. Right, so we'll spare you yet another rehearsal of it and we'll just we'll kind of zero in on, on Aditya's uh, claim. So it you know as any of any of the lawyers in our audience will recall <laughs> in Marbury versus Madison, old William Marbury had a gripe about not having his uh, his commission of office and he takes he files as a matter of original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court of the United States. Hoping meaning, to get, meaning he commences the lawsuit in the Supreme yes, Court. Yes, he, he started off there. He didn't get there by appeal. He went straight there hoping they would issue a particular type of order. And the reason he thought he could do that was Congress had passed a statute that at least on one reading of the statute seemed to allow that sort of filing. So there he was. And and John Marshall famously said, eh, you filed in the wrong place. And the reason I'm saying that is that Congress did try to let you file in our court. 
And that's not what actually the text of the Constitution says in Article 3 about the kinds of cases we can hear. Congress can't expand our jurisdiction beyond what the— Our uh, original jurisdiction. Our original jurisdiction beyond what the, the Constitution provides. So go file somewhere else. And as I understand Aditya's argument, it's, it's basically the same thing, saying, look, the statute that's the basis for your case and others like it going from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces to the Supreme Court— is itself an improper expansion of, of uh, Supreme Court jurisdiction. Is that the thrust of it? Yes, and, and the, the most important fact for Adichie's brief is the fact that CAF is, unlike every other Article One, right, so non-Article Three federal court, CAF is located, quote, for administrative purposes, unquote, in the executive branch. Um, and so Adichie's argument is that even though the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is called the court, even though Congress has established it as a court of record, the fact that it's in the executive branch means that any writ directed to it is a writ directed to executive officers and is therefore um, an original proceeding, not an appellate proceeding. Which means that your posture is supposedly just like William Marbury right. going to the Supreme Court in the first instance, asking them to give an order to some executive right, branch that, official. Right. The argument presupposes that I am that this that I am that the Supreme Court is the first moment in these cases where a, quote, judicial, unquote, proceeding is taking place. Is it fair to say this is this is sort of a classic formalism versus functionalism clash? So uh, it, Adichie's argument is certainly formalistic. Yeah. Um, but you're not willing to surrender all the formal ground either. No, because I actually think that so, – so, yes, I mean, it's certainly true that there's a formalism-functionalism divide here. The problem is that the Supreme Court has actually – historically embraced a little bit of both formalism and functionalism in this space. So the court has been quite formal about when it's going to allow non-Article III federal adjudication at all. Um, and the basic formalism today is they generally don't, except in the three historical circumstances where it's previously been allowed. So it's not pure formalism, yeah. right? Pure formalism would be right. never. Well, what are those three historical exceptions? So the three are territorial courts. So, for example, the courts in the District of Columbia, right? The D.C. Mm -hmm. Superior and D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, the Guam, right? Uh, Superior mm -hmm. Court. or the, uh, Sorry, the Guam District Court, right? Those are federal but not Article Three courts, meaning they're courts created by Congress but staffed by judges who don't have constitutional tenure. salary yeah. and tenure protection. Um, so territorial courts are one. Military courts, right, courts martial and increasingly military commissions are two. And then the third category, which is where most of the contemporary fight usually is, is courts to resolve so-called public rights disputes. So part of what bankruptcy courts do, um, the Court of Federal Claims, the tax court, um, a lot of administrative adjudication, right? This is sort of public rights claims that depend upon federal waivers of sovereign immunity and or complex federal administrative schemes. Um, and the formalism here is the Supreme Court generally disfavors non-Article Three federal jurisdiction beyond those three examples. But the functionalism is once you have these courts, Bobby, the Supreme Court has historically taken a very um, functional approach to what appellate jurisdiction is. Right? So Marbury itself says it's the essential criterion of appellate jurisdiction to revise the proceedings in a cause already constituted and not to initiate the proceeding. And so I guess the, the million-dollar question, right, that Adichie's argument raises, and it's an argument the Supreme Court has never squarely dealt with, is um, if you have what looks in every possible respect like a judicial proceeding in an entity that is administratively in the executive branch, which controls, 
right? That it's a judicial proceeding, and therefore the Supreme Court is being asked simply to review what some other judges did, or that's in the executive branch, and so whatever it's called, the Supreme Court is in fact issuing relief directly against the executive branch. So it's fair to say that we have to assume that at least a handful of the justices actually find this pretty interesting, if nothing else. Maybe not problematic, but interesting enough to want to ride on it. Oh, certainly. I, I, I mean, uh, there's no way they would have otherwise, I mean, you know, the- Given immoral argument Given immoral argument yeah. time. Um, I just think that, you know, if you think through the implications of Adich's point, right? Um, so take the DC Court of Appeals, right? The DC Court of Appeals is the highest court of the District of Columbia, right? But it's actually a federal court. It's created by Congress. It's controlled by Congress. It's staffed by judges, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Right? The D.C. Council has no role in supervising the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, why is the Supreme Court allowed to exercise jurisdiction over the D.C. Court of Appeals? Right? Uh, the Supreme Court has said because it's a lower court created by Congress. Um, there's an 1894 case that I'm sure no one has heard about called United States versus Co., where the question was whether the Supreme Court could review the then Article I Court of Indian Land Claims that old chestnut, mm -hmm. um, right? And the Supreme Court actually spends about a page or two, Chief Justice Fuller saying, listen, when Congress uses its power to create non-Article Three courts, right, it follows that Congress can give us the power to review them, um, right? Because- Did he engage the Marbury point? Or so, did he just no, because the Court of Indian that. Land Claims was not located, quote, for administrative purposes, unquote, in the executive branch. Yeah, yeah. But so one last thing on the Marbury point, and then I'll shut up, because I know I'm, I'm rambling. No, this is interesting. Um, even if you accept the premise of the amicus brief that um, the fact that CAF is located in the executive branch means it's like you're issuing a writ to an executive branch officer, right. I don't think that proves that the proceeding is therefore original. So imagine a, uh, the Supreme Court oftentimes in the old days would issue what we call, quote, original, unquote, writs of habeas corpus, um, which were actually an exercise of appellate jurisdiction. So this is sort of a Fed court's nerd, nerd, nerdistry moment, right? But um, when the court didn't have direct appellate jurisdiction, it would sometimes use its power to issue an, a writ of habeas corpus as a way of basically hearing an appeal anyway. Is that fairly described as collateral? Um, so a kind of collateral proceeding? It's, it's not, not original, but it's not directly appellate either. I mean, the court always treated it as appellate, right? So mm -hmm. in Ex parte Bowman, the Aaron Burr conspiracy case that the Supreme <laughs> Court hears four years after Marbury, um, Marshall has to explain why he can issue an original writ of habeas corpus, which, by the way, has to be directed to an executive branch jailer right. to be effective. And what does he say about that? And he says that as long as the writ is functionally appellate, right, it's not, even if but, it's... But in that case, who, yeah, who was the first decision maker in um, that The case? circuit court for the District of Columbia. Yeah, okay. But, so, so, but, the, but Marshall's point, right, is that in that context, the court was issuing an original writ right, to an executive branch officer, to wit, Bowman's jailer, right, for the purpose of reviewing the judgment of, an, of a lower court. And it seems to me that even if you accept that that's what's happening here, Bowman says that's okay. So in the order of the arguments, when you actually have to go in and argue this, I guess uh, Aditya will argue after you? Yeah, so or? it goes me and then Aditya. Um, Brian Fletcher, this fantastic lawyer in the Solicitor General's office, is arguing on behalf of the government, mm -hmm. and then I get rebuttal. So it's me, but now Aditya. You, have to divide. Did, you didn't get extra time in your rebuttal, did you? No. That's kind of a bummer. So you could have used <laughs> all that time to respond to the government. Now you're going to have to split it based on your on-the-spot assessment of where the very I'm, – I'm not going to ask you to – and, and you know – reveal your strategy, but eh, sure. My, it, my strategy is to win. Yeah, 
<laughs> score more than the other yeah, guys. Score more than the other guy. Have good defense and offense. Yes. I would imagine what you're going to be doing is is figuring out you know what's the coalition that could vote for you, and then try to determine from the way they're responding in their questions how serious do you need to be, how how concerned do you need to be about this issue potentially shooting a hole in it, and maybe having to divert some of your response time. To That's it. right. Although frankly, I, mean, I, I think it's more likely. I, I will surely get some questions about this. I, I think it's really likely that the government will get more questions, both because the government is going after Aditya. And because um, the the reason why the Supreme Court today has appellate jurisdiction over CAF is because the government insisted on it, right? So this is all, you know, the government in 1983, oh, yeah, they want that, yeah. right, wanted to be able to get these cases to the Supreme Court. That wholly apart from the merits of the Dalmazi case, the government has an interest, um, and I, it's one I share, in the Supreme Court going to have the last word in cases that CAF hears. So, you know, I, my hope is that the... Well, I, I hope that the government has to spend all of its argument time talking about this <laughs> yeah. issue. So maybe you might actually benefit from this. It, it, it's an interesting uh, sort of three-way combat. Uh, we'll see whose ox gets gored the most. Okay, well, we'll have more on that soon. I guess. Or, or, or I'll be so sick and tired of talking about it. By I next say week. good luck. Yeah, and thanks, I, I'm excited to see how this turns out. All right, really quickly, should we do a, a FISA lightning round? FISA lightning. Um, three developments. First of all, in United States versus Muhammad, a Ninth Circuit ruling which Speaking had. Speaking of the Supreme Court. Yes, yeah, <laughs> the Supreme Court had cert, has denied cert in that case. Uh, the Ninth Circuit had said there's basically not a Fourth Amendment interest when there's. Uh, not Fourth Amendment violation when the fruits of 702 collection are then used later in a criminal proceeding. Not a not a terribly uh, surprising result. And I think that for our purposes, the main interesting question had been, might the court have engaged on this in a way that would have upset the apple cart in the ongoing congressional reform surrounding 702? Um, and that whatever whatever likelihood that was clearly ain't happening. So. Yeah, I mean, Muhammad was never. I mean, it wasn't. It was no. It was notable because it was like the first of the criminal cases where there was 702 notification that, that produced a circuit court decision. And so I think that's why it got a lot of attention. But the 702 challenge, I think, was so, um, what's what I'm looking for, sort of peripheral, right? Like it, it was, what, what, when folks worry about 702, right, that wasn't really the kind right. of stuff that was at the heart of Muhammad's case. So that'll lead us in a moment to mention, the, you know, the renewal process. But real quick, there's also been this interesting certification of an appellate question to the FISA Court of Review, the Fisker. The Fisker's going to have a case. Uh, another one. This I think will be like the third or fourth, right, in its history. Maybe start fifth. start earning their pay. Seriously. Um. Yeah. So so we've we talked I think a couple weeks ago, Bobby, about the the six to five on bonk decision by the FISA court, um, overruling Judge Collier and holding that the ACLU does indeed have standing to pursue its claim that it has a First Amendment right of access to a bunch of not either not disclosed or not fully disclosed uh, FISA court opinions. Um, Judge Collier has taken advantage of the certification provisions of the USA Freedom Act to now certify this question to the FISA Court of Review. And there's a real good chance it will uh, well, so, so not locked in, but a good chance it will disagree with the en banc. And, well, I mean, I mean, if you just look at the, just if you go on the comp, I mean, the, the Fisker is three pretty conservative judges who tend to be hostile to standing. Yeah. Um, and and I raised the possibility on on Twitter that you know a bad standing rule from Fisker could actually give the Supreme Court. An interesting opportunity to take a case from Fisker. So if the uh, if the Fisker judges 
are strategic, they will modulate how they handle this so as not to precipitate the first Supreme Court review of anything. So far as we know. So Marcy Wheeler has ah, a theory. Good point, good point, right? yeah. Marcy has a theory that there was a secret Supreme Court FISA case a couple of years ago. Pa- paging Dakota Rudisil, we got more secret law. Oh, I was going to say paging... Um, um, Dave Posen? No, um, <laughs> uh, Louise Mensch, right? The marshal oh. of the Supreme Court <laughs> is coming for us. Um, uh, what, that was not... That's not where you're going. No, it's not um, where I was but, going. But I, I mean, let me just say, I, I think the the other point we talked. We talked about this when we talked about the en banc ruling. Even if you're hostile to the standing claim here, right? I think the the ACLU has an uphill climb on the merits, um, and so I don't know why you'd be in a big hurry if you were the Fisker to create an appealable standing precedent versus just saying, yeah, they're standing, but then say lots of bad things about why they're probably going to lose on the merits and send it back to Judge Collier. No doubt it's a moment in light of that where they kind of wish they didn't have to take it, but hey, there's a statute and here's if, a certification mechanism. Who, who the hell wrote that certification provision into uh, the USA Freedom Troublemakers. Act? Speaking of people I should go find that guy and beat him up. <laughs> you should. Whoever uh, whoever does these things uh, should get to work because we need to renew Section 702 either by January 19th, 10 days from now, or if you focus on when the existing certifications might run out by April. Uh, Steve, there's 10 days to go on the uh, the more obvious <laughs> of the two clocks. And today the House Rules Committee is marking up a bill that's being touted as sort of a compromise or uh, just a quick glance at the the Twitters uh, suggests that it was a, you know, an interesting hearing going on while we're doing this. Lots more to come. We don't know what's going to happen yet. I think it's safe to say that it's too soon to judge. If this bill, the one that, that was the main vehicle coming into this hearing this afternoon, uh, it's being touted as, as a compromise because on one hand, it does introduce uh, an obligation when the FBI wants to search the fruits of 702 collection uh, for, for information that may be U.S. person information or that would be U.S. person information. They got to go get a warrant if it's for a predicated criminal investigation with an exception for situations where uh, life or limb is at stake. On the other hand, it does it by extension does not do so and leaves FBI in its status quo search if you want position for Either it's, it's not a predicated investigation, but something else, or it's a national security investigation, which is clearly exempted. And so naturally, being in, in the nature of a compromise, uh, no one likes it, right? So everybody's complaining. We'll see if that's what becomes the rule. Too soon to call. All right. So why don't we do some quick frivolity and then let people get on with their, their days? There are, there are those. Three of them, at least, <laughs> who, who hang in there to the bitter end just for this. And we have a, a special treat. Let's talk about stuff we really don't understand, like uh, movies and music and uh, award shows. So so Pittsburgh 3 was pretty bad, right? I liked it. I was, And you might have lowered my expectations. Sufficiently. Uh, I, I took my kids, uh, who, who've enjoyed Pitch Perfect 1 and 2, um, I focused mainly on the music, and I enjoyed the riff-off. The riff-off in any Pitch Perfect movie, that's where the fun is, to see where the writers can, or the whoever's writing these, these uh, productions can connect up a bunch of pretty familiar songs in ways that they kind of ham-handedly explain when they... they, they uh, you know, the they acapella splain to us. <laughs> Acasplain. Acasplain. That's Come on it. Now. That's it. Sorry. I wasn't listening that closely to the, the regular dialogue. Um, they uh, acasplain the, the, how, how you do the riff off. You try to match right. the meter, you try to match the the the, the t- all the rest of it. And and then there's a theme. And of course it's all it's all hilarious and it's meant to be funny. Uh, the first theme, of course, uh, being 
artists you didn't know were Jewish. That was, I was going to say, my favorite theme was the <laughs> artists you didn't know were Jewish. You know, my people, we, we were always surprised. It's like the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. Yeah, it's exactly what came to mind for me, too. Um, so, And that's great. You know, they, they launch right in, of course, with Lenny Kravitz, which is a great oh, way to yes. go. Um, but of course, I liked even more their their second theme, zombie apocalypse yes. music, and and having had a guilty pleasure appreciation for the cranberries back in the day, um, I did enjoy that they that uh, uh, Ruby Rose and her band leans right in with zombie. Yes, that was, cranberries, that was yeah. pretty good. Um, the cranberries, which the, reminds me of the Clueless uh, of the moment in Clueless where Elton's like, I can't find my cranberry CD. I have to go to the I have to go to the, the whatever it is and get a new one and replace it. <laughs> Used to love the cranberries. Well, my my kids, of course. Although I was more a linger person than a zombie person. Ling, linger's great, and uh, zombie's more fun. But zombie's a good sort of zombie's I, like a yeah, a that's a good angry song. Yeah, yeah. And as my as I played the original for my kids in the car yesterday, and and they said, oh, that's a, that, my oldest says that's a pretty angry song. And did she just say and their bombs and their bombs twice in a row like? And I said, you know what? I actually think that's right. I think it's their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns. Um, all right. Anything else note, to say about Pitch Perfect? Other no. Than, oh, you're not a fan. Please like let there not be Pitch Perfect 4. Can we well, be done? Were you at least a fan of the Golden Globes? So I was, for the most part. I'm not really sure I agree with the best movie, um, the built three the billboards. billboards in whatever county. Yeah. Like, you know, Although my, there wasn't a super strong, obvious, uh, right. jilted candidate yeah. movie. What, what, what would you have given it to? I don't know. I mean, the, the Oscars will be interesting because I think it has real competition from yeah. the, the other category. Um, I was, of course, ecstatic that Rachel Brosnahan won for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel won for, for Best Series. Um, as our listeners know, I completely agree. Uh, and if you're not already watching the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Get on it. There you go. I knew you'd be satisfied by that. But I also want to say I was I was a little perturbed um, that on a moment that on a night that was super I think a, a super powerful you know moment in Hollywood for you know remedying prior imbalances and for acknowledging just how pervasive sex discrimination sexual harassment has been in Hollywood that none of the men not one of the men who won a Golden Globe said anything specific about Me Too, right? There were, there were sort of general allusions to like, this is an important moment and it's a good time and we need to make progress. But like the actual words Me Too or Time's Up didn't come out of the mouth of a single male I, I thought I, I may have gotten this wrong. I, I'd heard that that was the case. And I thought that someone said that there was at least one that did talk about Time's Up, at least in passing. I thought, I thought that there was, Not that that there was one winner who, says, who, who clearly yeah. was referring to the, the, the episode. Mm -hmm. But if anything, that exception proves the rule, right? Which is that, you know, the many of the men were sort of curiously um, uh, oblivious to the importance of not just not just being allies, but of actually using their own voices, right, to acknowledge the historic nature of the moment. Does it cut any ice for you that Seth Meyer sort of turned, of necessity as the host, of course, it'd be impossible for him to have gone on and done and done a routine that didn't heavily focus on yeah, his no, themes. I, I, thought, I thought Seth Meyer's was good. That's, um, a, that's a tough... That's a tough spot to be in, as he directly acknowledged. Of course, and, and I thought he, I thought he handled it very well. Yeah. Um, I actually thought the one-liner of the night goes to, of all people, Natalie Portman, right? Who, without missing a beat, uh, when Ron Howard is like just being awkward white man, Ron Howard says, "And here are the all-male nominees." Wait, I got a question. Awkward white man. What do you, what do you mean? This was like it was right after Oprah's speech, okay. right? So it's a hard act to follow, right? Oprah br literally brought the house down. But 
there are any number of things. Ron Howard could have said lots of things at that moment to acknowledge the power and dynamism of Oprah's speech, to acknowledge the moment, to just transition somehow. And he just sort of, you know, chuckled his way through the transition. And Natalie Portman's like, I'm not standing for that. Here are the all-male nominees for Best Director. Do you think she meant not standing? Was she reaction to him or to the list of nominees oh, being both. all male? But no, I mean, I, I, I think, think it was I, well, I think it was more the latter. I think she had planned the line. Yeah, right. But but my point is just like you know, it fed into my perception that many, not all, but many of the men involved in the proceedings, even if even if when asked, were super supportive, were not actually affirmatively thinking of ways to actually you know help empower the the moment and, and participate in the moment. Interesting. Well, you know, the obvious thing that hangs over this, you know, Hollywood has been very quick to pat itself on the back for what a great job they did with the Golden Glob- Globes fixing this problem. Of course, this problem is in substantial part a Hollywood problem in its Harvey right. Weinstein aspect and certain other aspects. It's broader than that. I, I, let Every me, industry let me, let me be really clear about what you're People are going to parse what you're saying. I don't mean to say it's a Hollywood-specific problem. I mean that Hollywood in particular has a very visible and leading role in bringing right. this moment out. So it's a little little rich for Hollywood to be very excited about itself. And you're pointing out that it maybe and maybe they shouldn't be. Well, <laughs> that was my phone well, bouncing to the floor. Not that they now. shouldn't be. But just, no, but just that, just that I thought it actually – proved the need for the Me Too moment, that on a night that was ostensibly about Me Too and Time's Up, right, you only really heard that message from one half, uh, not even one half, because let's be honest about the numbers, but you only heard that message from one sex. Um, and, and I just think that, you know, the, the obligation is on the men, to actually, you know, open their eyes a little bit here. I think you're going to see in the Oscars a, a, a big swing oh, in that direction. The, the, listen, Hollywood is nothing if not ready to fight the last war, right? And so, you know, the Oscars, <laughs> yeah, every man is going yeah. to get up there and, and, and talk about how support, you He's know. Not, they're not going to be, I'm not going to be that guy. Right, they're all going to talk about their Jewish lawyer. So it's going to oh, go heavens. very well. That's right. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> The Roy, the Roy Moore reference, of course. I don't think uh, she, I don't think his wife called the guy a Jewish lawyer. I think he he just called him a she just called him a Jew lawyer, if yeah. I recall correctly. Well, there is that, but yeah. I, I wasn't even going to go there. All right. Well, so go back to the, the words themselves. Uh, so what did you think? I was a little the best TV drama going to Handmaid's Tale over Stranger Things. I was really surprised. Uh, I thought Stranger Things was so so obvious to me that that was such an original, unique. Yeah. Uh, you know, its own story. It's not an adaptation of a book, I don't yeah, think. Yeah. Um, I was really surprised by that. Uh, did you have any other upsets that you were, you noted? You know, I, I think that's. An I'll upset. be perfectly honest. I mean, I have not seen nearly enough of the relevant TV series yeah. or movies. Did you watch Big Little Lies? Um, Karen did. Um, and and I and I sort of peripherally watched it over her shoulder as I. Karen and I have this thing where she'll watch TV and I'll work. Yeah. Right, and so so I pick up every like fourth line. So um, it, and I gather Big Little Lies did very very well, and Karen thought that did. was appropriate. Absolutely no. So I thought it was it was entirely appropriate. They won a number of things, including especially Nicole Kidman's role, which was amazing. Um, uh, but for the supporting actress nod that went to uh, Laura Dern instead of her co-star Shailene Woodley, I thought was uh, more than a surprise. I mean, um, listen, I, I love Shailene Woodley, um, and I'm still pissed off at Laura Dern for not thinking about kamikaze and the, the maybe, dreadnought suit. Maybe this is all just so our, it's, it's, our... It's Star Wars yeah, bleed over. there you go. All right, last but not least, who's going to win in the uh, the next round of the NFL? The Giants! Playoffs? The Giants! Oh, wait, okay. <laughs> not... um, so, did you see anything... Did you did you get a chance to watch any of the playoff games this oh, weekend? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you see anything from the Titans 
or I don't even remember who won the other game. The Jaguars. Jack, Jack, Jacksonville. Right? Um, do those teams look like they can stand in the same company as the Patriots and the Steelers? So some people, certainly not the Titans. I think that the Jacksonville's people defense. are trying to make the case on defense. Yeah. I think that uh, I think we're looking towards a Patriots-Steelers AFC championship, uh, which actually is what a lot of people really want to see, me included. Eh, I think the Steelers. I think the Steelers are going to go to the Super Bowl this year and probably win the whole thing. Um, to me, the NFC is far more wide open and interesting. I mean, listen, the Eagles are the first number one seed to open as an underdog since the NFL yeah. went to this playoff format. Well, it's the curse of the injuries, right? Indeed. It's lack of faith in Austin's own, Westlake High's <laughs> own, uh, Nick Foles. He, and, and, you know, that gives us the uh, remarkable fact that Westlake High's Drew Brees will be in one of Drew the Brees. NFC games and Nick Foles will be in the other. And I think that's pretty fantastic for the city of Austin. That said, uh, I think only one of them is going to win. I think that the Saints are going to take down the Vikings. I think the Falcons are going to take down the Eagles. And then the Saints are going to be playing the Steelers in the, the big big game. So if if the Saints win and the Falcons win, the game would be in New Orleans. And the Saints are a different team at home. So so if that happens, I, I, I will happily join in the Saints prediction. I, I don't know. You know, I just – this feels like – I, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm saying this as a Giants fan. This feels like injuries notwithstanding the Eagles' year. Oh, oh I, I just, I just, I don't know. I just think it's gonna. I, the Eagles are are such a complete team, and every other team in the NFC is so flawed. Mm. And so that's exactly why they'll lose. Like that's exactly, and then and then the curse of Philadelphia. So so I guess by this time, so so by this time next week, we'll know who's playing in the conference championship games, and we'll have yet more evidence. None of us have any idea what we're talking about. That's right. We we might know what's going on with Section Seven Hundred Two. We might know when the government's going to file their return in ACLU versus Mattis. We'll have any any number of additional public figure men uh, shown to have behaved horribly and have uh, had their uh, number called. Um, and we'll have Dalmazi to recap. That's going to keep us busy. All right. And it's, the, and it's my first day of five courts next Wednesday. Hey, uh, and then me and Matt Tate will be teaching our cybersecurity seminar this spring, but it starts on uh, a Monday. So, oh, so you have extra time. So we have the extra time because of MLK Day. All right, everybody. Well, on that note, stay safe out there. Adios.